When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello, brave mummers. Are you ready to get the lowdown about everything women's health? Our guest today has been an inspiration to countless women living with pelvic organ prolapse, as well as the medical community charged for caring for women with pelvic organ prolapse. Once she was diagnosed herself, she was mad, and mad that something so prevalent happens to one in two of us women, it just wasn't spoken about. Her life work is now making sure that that changes and women no longer have to feel alone and isolated. There is so much to get through. We have broken this episode into a two-part series. Let's jump into part one. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast. Today, our very special guest is Sherry Palm, all the way from the USA. It is an honor to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for talking to me. I am so delighted to join you today, Stephanie. I'm, I've been looking forward to this podcast for a while, so I'm, I'm happy to engage. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So, Sherry, I was let's take us back. Take us back to 2007 at the start of your own personal journey, which kind of kicked off APOPs altogether. I think people would love to know a little bit more about yourself. Okay. The background is, is really almost every woman's story. I, you know, had a busy life. I worked a 60 hour week, uh, addressed family needs, etc. And because of the 60 hour week, as women, we tend to rush through our bathroom scenario. And, you know, you rush in the bathroom and you, you drop trowel and you pee and you wipe and you pull them up and you go back to work and you don't really give it much thought after you wash your hands. You're just back in, in your desk or wherever you work at. And that's what happened with me. I, I, for about three months straight, I had been noticing when I went to the bathroom to urinate that there was what felt like a lump. Oh. And, but I, I work a lot of hours, you know, just do your thing and get back to work. And that was it. So after about three months, I got really curious one day and I thought, what the heck is that? Yeah. And I got that handheld mirror out to take a look to see what was going on down there. Right. And I was pretty shocked to see a walnut-sized lump protruding from my vagina. Looked like a tumor. Right. I really what your initial thoughts were. It's that was my thought. initial thought, right? And I guess that that's relatively common from what I read in studies that, that that's what women think it is. And I had never really heard much about vaginal tumors before. So I didn't freak out and jump to that page completely. I just thought that's what it looked like. Yeah. And lucky for me. A very close friend of mine was my primary care practitioner. Okay. So I shot her an email and said, okay, I don't know what's going on down below. Yeah. However, blah, blah, blah. And she says, come on in, we'll do a pelvic exam and I'll check it out. So uh, I went into the office for that pelvic exam and it was very quick. She did the exam and she said, matter of fact, like, you have pelvic organ prolapse. I will fit you with a pessary. If you're not happy with that pessary, I will refer you to a good urogynecologist and you can talk about surgery. I had no clue what she was talking about. No I was going to say, did you even know what a pessary was? I didn't know what any of those terms meant. No, and, yeah. and I, given the fact that she is a primary care practitioner, she's a good friend of mine. We would meet for lunch and dinner and talk about all kinds of health stuff all the time. And this subject never came up, kind of blew me away. So she fit me with a pessary and it fit well. It worked really well. And obviously I went home and got on with my life, temporarily got on with my life. 
And uh, after about two weeks of doing that, I thought, you know, I don't have time for a pessary. I, my typical morning is I would get up in the morning and I'd let the dogs out to pee and then I would um, pee myself and then I would let the dogs begin. I would feed the dogs and then I would uh, plug in my juice and go exercise for an hour and then I okay. would eat some breakfast and then I would jump in the shower and then throw my face on and get my contacts in and get on with my day, go to work. Maybe throw a little laundry in in between there. And um, after two weeks of that, I thought, you know, I just don't have time for one more thing to do. And I tend to be one of those personalities that's like, you know, just fix it. If I need surgery, just fix it. I don't want to wait yeah. and research and think about it. Just fix it. And that's how I felt with this. I thought this is, is crazy. You know, this is so disruptive to my life. So I had no, I'm not lucky. I had no pain with this bulge. Right. I had a lot of symptoms of prolapse, but I didn't know there were symptoms of prolapse at that point. Okay. And so over that two week period, that first week period, when I was first using the pessary, I did my homework, I, I, my backdrop, if I go backwards now to when I was 30, I was 54 when I was diagnosed with prolapse. Okay. I go back to my, my 30, early 30s, my around 30, uh, I was diagnosed with very aggressive multiple sclerosis. And mm -hmm. it was wheelchair bound short time frame was a diagnosis. And so I did, I didn't find that an acceptable diagnosis. And so I did everything I could to help myself. Of course. And I started exploring alternative methods. Now there's a lot of medications out, prescription medications that they use for MS, but there wasn't anything at that point in time. It was okay. just a prednisone to stop the progression. And that was all that they had for an option. Right. So I started digging into uh, herbs and, and uh, exercise and, you know, stuff. Yeah. Stuff and that kind of stuff to see what I could do to help myself. And I found answers, obviously I'm not in a wheelchair. So, um, and I had MS for about five years before I was diagnosed. So it wasn't like a, a just a glitch that happened. And, and I went from there. So <clears throat> If you factor in that I had done all that research, and it took me a while. It wasn't. It took me about three years to figure out how to balance my body. It wasn't like an overnight thing. Yeah. Right. And throughout that time, from then on, I was very proactive about my health, all aspects of, of my female health. You know, I made sure my, the breast exams were done, the pelvic exams yeah. were done, and I also kept a close eye on my immediate family to see if you know I could help with any of the issues that they were navigating. It was just like a reflex for me. So, to be diagnosed with prolapse. And having never heard of it was unsettling to me. Well, then when I started researching those first two weeks after I was fitted with a diaphragm, I was blown away. I was livid. I was furious because I kept seeing how common this condition is over okay. and over and everything I found. And back then we didn't have um, access to Google for uh, research. It was come to the library, you know, dig for the studies and, and look through magazines and articles, et cetera. Right. And well, it's hard to find stuff to begin with. There wasn't a whole lot available back then. I have heard and, that. Uh, everything I found though just said the same thing. It's very, very common. At that point in time, the stat that was used for prevalence was 3.3 million women in the US. Whoa. So um, I, I found that mind boggling. It was yes. so common. Now we're hearing and reading 50% prevalence all the time. So um, I, I was very angered by this and I couldn't understand how it was possible. Yes. With proactive women's health breast activity. Yes. That this was overlooked and just yeah. disregarded. Yeah. yeah. It didn't make any sense to me. So I, I kept um, digging and digging and getting more information. Everything I read made me more angry. So I, after about two weeks, I, I recognized, well, you know what? I need to write a book. Women need to know this stuff. I got to get this information into the hands of women so that they know about it and they can be proactive and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know what made me think I could write a book. You've been there, done that. You know what that's like? It's like, well, I must write about this and then you just do it. Yeah. And so I had gathered um, a lot of information, background information on prolapse. And I also contacted my primary care and said, you know what? I'm just not happy with the past three. It works great. Fits great. I'm just not happy with it. So she referred me to the urogynecologist and it took me through because it was December of 2007 when I was diagnosed. Okay. And it was about three weeks into January before I could get to see the urogyne. So I went to see her and I love my urogyne. She's awesome. And she said, well, Sherry, she says, you've got, she did the exam, you know, and she took her time with me and she said, you have got grade three. She diagnosed two Types. I actually turned out I had three types and she didn't recognize oh. the enterocele until she did the surgery. Right. Uh, so so different to the diagnosis you got from your 
GP? All she said was I had prolapse. Okay. The right. GP did not say what kind it was or okay. you know, degree of severity, any of that stuff, which is pretty common with, with a, a gynecal. They may Let's say you have a cystocele or a rectal seal, but they never go beyond that usually. And they don't usually know what a uh, grade of severity it is. Yes. So um, she, you know, gave me a definitive diagnosis and, and said, so I'm assuming that you want surgery. That's why you're here. But she says, you know, you've got lots of time. So she says, why don't you go home? And this is just, you know, it's wintertime still and go home and let summer get here and enjoy spring, spend the summer in your flower beds and, and, you know, relax in the back patio. Like I do that relax in the back <laughs> patio, and um, then come back and see me in the fall. And we'll talk about surgery and we'll address this. And I said, wrong, wrong. <laughs> Fix me yesterday. <laughs> just okay. Firing uh, your belly. Yeah. Yeah. So Sherry, just just on that, do you know the reasoning behind why she said for you to wait and come back in the fall? I think in general, it's because women are so dear in the headlights when they're diagnosed. Okay. And, and, And there needs to be time for most women to digest what they've been told. Process. To educate themselves about what's going on with their bodies. And I mean, she didn't say anything about educating myself about prolapse, but but uh, typically that's what women do. You know, we need to find answers for ourselves, but people in general, that's what they do with a health condition. And so I'm going to guess that that's probably the, the main reason for it. Um, I, I would imagine that many women, when they're first told that they have prolapse, and we hear this all the time in our forum, that <coughs> they're so shocked by this diagnosis that they don't know what to think or what to do. Yeah. They're pretty much just, just in hover because they don't know what direction to go. So I, as a practitioner, as a subspecialist, a urogynecologist, I'm guessing that they get that reaction on a very frequent basis. And uh, because of that, they're like, okay, you know, give her space, yeah. give her space. Give her time to process. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So right. then I, I just, I went ahead, I had, she scheduled me for surgery. She says, okay, if that's what you want, that's what we'll do. Oh, so she she scheduled me for surgery in February. Okay. And um, so I went in and she did, and she did advise me that she says, I know your type, your fitness geek. And she says, I'm telling you right now, 12 weeks, no exercise. Wow. Like, if that's what I have to do, that's what I have to do. You know, I want this to be fixed, fixed. We talked about mesh. Um, and I, at that point in time, there was, that was prior to all of the mesh blowing up in 2011. Yes. And I knew nothing about mesh. I was just trusting the judgment of my, my subspecialist. So and I said, do. okay. Yeah, whatever you think, you know, do what you have to do to fix it. And we moved forward from there. So um, did the surgery. It was a three-week heel curve. The first week I was pretty much on the couch. Again, it was grade three. I had three of the five types. So um, I made sure I did all the right stuff yep. to assure that it would heal properly. And then slowly weaned my way back into normal activities after that 12-week point then. So, and just uh, on would, that what is all the right stuff? Like, what is, you know, because I've seen women talk about, I've had surgery and I was advised not to do anything for six weeks, don't pick up anything heavier than a kettle. And then the, uh, in opposition, people say it's 12 weeks. It's, it's, I think because women are getting very different information about what a good recovery is. How did you know what the right things were? How did you find out? In my opinion, and this is just my opinion. I am not a practitioner. Yes. My opinion, all women should be given a 12-week heel curve. Women are sent back to work. They are told to resume their normal activities, which means vacuuming, which means picking up bags of groceries and picking up your toddlers. And that's just a recipe for disaster. And we know that we read in research uh, frequently that 30% of of prolapse surgeries fail. And there's a multiple, multiple reasons why that occurs, but certainly sending women back to their normal activities too early has got to be part of that issue. So um, whenever women tell me that their doctors told them that in six weeks, they could go back to normal activities, I just cringe. I just cringe. I, I hate that. Did they even and know I, what your normal activities were? Did they know how busy you were? Something- they, they don't even ask usually, you know, and, and I was lucky I had a Eurogyne that said 12 weeks, <laughs> it said 12 weeks, you know, behave yourself. So I was just, I was lucky. It was luck of the draw, 
but that's usually women, I hear most frequently that women are told eight weeks, but I hear six weeks frequently. Mm. And that's, to me, that's just wrong. So um, to your following out there, I say, no matter what your doctor says, 12 weeks. Okay. <laughs> take care minimum. of the body for As a minimum, weeks. right? And then take care of it after that too, but all the right stuff for 12 weeks for sure. So okay. just personal opinion for whatever yeah. it's worth. And it's really so. good to know for, from someone who's actually been there and done that, not the mm-hmm. surgeon who's performed the surgery and actually hasn't mm-hmm. lived through that. Right, right. I think people yes. would much prefer to listen to you who have, you've, you've had the real life experience, you know, you can't experience. get much better than that. Exactly, exactly. And, and women, we, we, I mean, our energy amongst each other, I mean, we, we listen to each other so well, you know, in, in that, that, that form space, uh, women truly respect each other's voices in there. And because there's such a, a diversity of uh, impacts to women, whether it's different types of quality of life impact, or it's, it's um, surgical or non-surgical impacts, or it's uh, the age factor alone, because yeah. this is women mid-teens end of life. And certainly what, what, what women who are 20 years old can do and what women who are 60 years old or 70 years old can do are entirely different things. Right. So you really have to dissect it down pretty deeply to, you know, to see what's the best fit for every woman individually, but certainly waiting longer, longer heel curve is always a good thing. So, okay. Always a good thing. So your book, Sherry, so it's now in its third edition and it's won multiple awards. Tell us, so you obviously did really well at writing this book that you didn't know you could write. Who is it written for and who should be reading this book? It's it's funny, you know, I look back on my first edition now and I just cringe. (laughs) I think, oh boy, that was so poorly written. But um, the book is for, it's a, a basic POP primer for all women. Women don't know about prolapse. They don't know any of the intricacies of it. They don't know the causes, the treatments, uh, the symptoms. And, and there's so, just so much basic information that women need that when I, I wanted to write it, it was all about all of that basic stuff. I certainly included information about my personal journey, but that's like a really small portion of the book. It was more about just basic POP 101. Okay. And and the intent, when I, I first decided to write the book, that just came out of anger. That was all part of that initial anger. I was like, women need to know this stuff. Boom, that's it. Women need to know this stuff. So um, I, I thought that if healthcare wasn't going to make this common knowledge that, you know, and I had the same illusions that all first-time authors have, you know, it's like, I'm going to write this book and women are going to grab it and aggressively and they're going to like absorb it and they're going to they're going to it's going to change their lives and they're going to know all about prolapse and they're going to help help themselves in big ways and i'm going to sell a million copies of it blah 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 well so much for that (laughs) you know it wasn't grabbed strongly you have to learn a lot about marketing you have to to learn about i mean i knew nothing about writing a book i knew i didn't know i could write um thank goodness for my seventh grade english teacher that i could write well well so I had to learn how to write a book and put it together. And again, you know all about that, that layering process. And then I had to learn yes. how to build a website to market it. I had to learn about marketing. I had to learn about finding a publisher, all of that stuff. And back then there wasn't much going on as far as self-publishing. So my first book was, okay. first edition was by a traditional publisher. Yes. And the next two editions I self-published. And I set up a, a publishing company of my own because I knew there'd be additional volumes every three to five years. Great. So, um, that journey. I was about 15 months into marketing the first edition and women were finding me uh, and they somehow through the internet, they would find me and they would get questions to me somehow. And through the, the website, I, I had just, the initial website was just for the book itself. And um, so I, I learned as I went and I was about 15 months into marketing that first edition when the light bulb came on. If I wanted to reach, reach women really effectively and help and nurture them effectively, I should found a nonprofit. And I knew nothing about the nonprofit sector. I mean, I, I coach Special Olympics basketball. Okay. That's coaching. That's not founding a nonprofit. You know? So yeah. I had to it's dig into that, that layer, you know, and, and understand how that worked. And fortunately for me, uh, Market University is a, a very prestigious university in the Milwaukee area here. And they had a program called MLink that was, you could apply to have their law school help you apply for your nonprofit, 501c3, oh, wow. federally recognized nonprofit. So I applied for that and I was accepted. 
And so they got me through the process of building my application, which was like 88 pages long. It was a, a huge application. And, um, and I was accepted as a, as a 501c3 nonprofit. So that started off that journey. And then I started attending a lot of classes at um, uh, the Nonprofit Center of Milwaukee to learn about the nonprofit sector. Yes. So, so the, every step that I've done, whether it was the, um, the book, books, I should say, because I'm working on book four now, the books or the nonprofit or building the websites or learning marketing, those are all just stepping stones to the big picture. And it's all funneling together information for women to help women okay. learn more about their bodies and understand their bodies better because this condition is just so prevalent. So um, the end game is just to help women. Every layer of it is just to help women. And then that's the bottom line. So phenomenal. Um, <laughs> Truly. Is, uh, and I think I love what I do, <laughs> you know, well, that's the good thing. So and if we didn't have you, even I'm talking now from a woman who has prolapse, I didn't know where to go. And I found you in the US before I found anything here in Australia. So mm -hmm. it just goes to show what you're doing is obviously making an effect. And I would love to talk some more about numbers. So you mentioned very early on that the 50% number is now what we're talking. So that's one in two women yes. having yes. some experience with prolapse. Like you, that makes me really angry and that moment of, oh my goodness, how can we have such high numbers of this and know nothing about it? It made me feel actually quite silly as a woman to not know what can happen to my own body. Like I don't think we're taught much in high school and, and things about anatomy, mm -hmm. but I felt like, oh, I'm a, I'm, I'm a woman and I didn't even know that. Kind of like the Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, when she did her goop episode and she didn't know what a vulva was and she thought mm -hmm. that it was all just called vagina. We all laughed at her, but I guarantee there was half of us sitting in the room going, oh, really? What? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that either. And I'm really embarrassed to, to say that. I didn't even know what the difference. I thought it was just all a vagina. I knew mm -hmm. they had some other names, but I didn't really know what they were. So I think we all had that guilt of saying well what do we do so 50 percent what's what's going on how come we don't know about it how come we're not taught this see this is this is one of the big the big bugaboos that makes me crazy the vagina is so stigmatized vaginal health is so stigmatized and that's ridiculous it's a body part um the fact that that i, I always compare it to the breast health campaign before the early 70s, <coughs> 1970s, you couldn't say the word breast on radio or TV. And you could not write the word breast in print media, magazines or newspapers. Right. And so what we're seeing happen now, all this time, it's been the same thing with vagina. Oh, if you can't say breast, you certainly can't say vagina. Yeah. And so um, what we're seeing now with the surge in femtech is a subtle shift. And it's, it was, it did like a surge thing over the past year and a half or so. And I, I saw it start to die down a little bit. So I don't know where it's going to go, but I'm seeing more, I'm getting more Google alerts on my computer related to pelvic organ prolapse. So that is definitely surging up now. And so um, until we get past the stigma of the word vagina, and how we think about the vagina and how we disrespect the vagina, we still have a ways to go. So um, every person, no matter whether they're in a, a clinician or an industry or uh, advocacy in any way, shape or form, the more each of those sectors say those, that word and talk about it out loud, the more that softens all of that noise and enables us to get to the page that we need to be on. All women need yeah. to be comfortable with their vaginas. And part of that stigma is related to how um, we were raised as women. We were pretty much taught it's not okay to talk about our vaginas, to think about Why? our vaginas. Why? Heaven's Why sakes, did don't get that? touch your vagina. You know? Don't and look so, at it either. I was a, like a. Yeah, you can't look at it. Right, exactly. I Okay, brave mamas, 
This episode is so jam-packed with information, it can be quite a lot to try and digest at once. So why don't we pause and take a quick break so that you can go and grab yourself a cup of tea. Today I'm drinking Madame Flavors Classic Grey Deluxe. And what I love most about this is the story behind it. The founder of Madame Flavor, Corinne, whenever she drinks the classic Grey Deluxe, it reminds her of her travels around the world and especially going to New York. So I thought it would be pretty fitting that while I was chatting with my friend Sherry from the States, that I have one too. And what I love most about this one is that it's got a nice little Aussie twist with some lemon myrtle, which for anyone who's not a massive fan of... um, Earl Grey tea, this is definitely worth a try. Horrified to see it after childbirth because I'd never really looked down there. I'd never see it. And it's, it's, to me, it's mind boggling. If we're trying to be proactive about women's health, that women aren't told to look at the vagina so that they know what their own anatomy looks like, you know? Yeah. And so you're yeah. what you're washing it with closed eyes. <laughs> you know, don't look down there, just wash it, you know? And so um, we have a ways to go yet with the vagina stigma, but I think it's, I don't think, I know it's moving forward, but we do still have a ways to go. And um, I chase down media all the time, magazine uh, journalists, you know, uh, newspaper and magazine journalists, and I swear they probably have got a, a picture of me on their dartboard on their wall that they throw darts at when they get an email. It's like, oh, that's that Sherry Palm person again, <laughs> talking about vaginas, <laughs> you know, because they're so sick of me chasing them and blabbing about it. It's like, just get over it. For heaven's sakes, it's a body part. You know, we all yeah. have them if you're women, you know, you either have one or, or you're a man and you want to do engage with yeah. one. Well, <laughs> you were certainly whatever. born from one, men. And this is what yes. I don't get. So yeah, obviously, see, I, the people above the, the reporters and, you know, the, um, in media, they're sitting above a layer of red tape and bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of 10 are heavily male-dominated industries mm-hmm. where they just shy away from it. I even know from my own dad, writing a book with the title Vagina in it, it took some time for him to blush less and less every time he saw me with it or say the word vagina. And I even became a little bit uncomfortable saying it around him. Like, Oh, you know, my book, my brave mama book. But then now I'm totally fine. And it just took time, like you said, to destigmatize it. And my gut felt like someone's asked me this exact same question. Why do you think we are like this? And I, my, my feeling is, potentially pornography has had a lot to do with us being ashamed and I only recently learned from another podcast here in Australia is that the rules in pornography say you can't actually show a woman's vulva which is why they are you know cosmetically trained to just be that typical one that you think yours should look like and when it doesn't you think it's abnormal and I was like really really someone wrote a rule about that wow it's, it, I mean, there, there's no two penises that look exactly alike. <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you're talking, you know, potato, potato here. So um, it, it's, it's unsettling and it's not fair. And the only way that women's health will truly advance effectively is when we get over it. I mean, like you said, I mean, it's the, the vessel of life. It, it's the vessel of love. And we have got to get to that page where, we're all accepting that this is just anatomy, you know, it, it's a, it's a really significant valuable part of the anatomy, but we certainly should not be ashamed of it or embarrassed about it. It's, it's part of our reality, you know, so, and we'll get there. We'll get there. It's just got a ways to go yet. So. It's going to take time. Okay. So that's a great, that's a great segue to my next question is that what can we do? So I'm talking about we as in mums and sisters and daughters and women living with pop and within this space in particular, knowing that this is our major audience, what do we do to help? Like we're all sitting here wanting to do something because we're frustrated and we're angry just like you, but there's obviously things that we can be doing, but what are they? (laughs) Step one is, is educate your daughters. Step one at the very base of everything that we do. If you educate your daughters and you make them comfortable 
with this part of their body and let them know that it's, it's a, a part to be proud of. And, and uh, it's, it's again, that, that vessel of life uh, when you're having your sex conversations with your children, you have to really normalize it as comfortably as you possibly can so that they are comfortable with it as well. That's step one. Step two is talk about it with your friends, your mother, your sisters, your neighbors uh, on, a, on a comfortable basis. And, and just like what happened with your dad, I mean, I have the same thing with my family when they, well, they all think I'm a total nut job, <laughs> but, but that's, that's the side. Um, not all of it, but most of them. Um, you have to keep just rebuilding and rebooting those conversations in different ways. For me, it was a matter of saying, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm having this podcast with so-and-so and I'm talking about blah, blah, blah or I'm going to DC to talk to a congressperson about blah, 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 and keep bringing up the topic in any way around it that you can yes. to continue those conversations and reboot conversations and evolve conversations until other people get comfortable with it. Hmm. And it's, it just takes time. Women uh, that we are seeing more women that are uh, getting to that page of frustration. And when I first started doing this, no one talked about it out loud, no one. Yeah. And even when we had that little tiny forum uh, and women were in, in a closed space, they barely talked about it. And now you go into our forum and, and women are just like, blah, 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 you know, and they're like dumping all their stuff and they're asking all their targeted questions and that's where it needs to be out loud, seriously. So, I mean, if you would talk about with a friend of yours about uh, you were diagnosed with a bladder infection, you wouldn't hesitate to say to your friend, well, I had a, had a bladder infection. I got down to the drugstore and pick up my prescription, you know, and yeah. want to ride with me and we'll talk, whatever. You wouldn't hesitate to do that. Or I went to the dentist yesterday yeah. and I thought I had a cavity, but it turned out it wasn't. I was so lucky. Don't bet an eyelash at that. We have to look at the vagina from the same angle. It's part of our body and, and get to that comfort zone. Because when you speak with someone else, completely comfortable about it and, and, they get to the page where they're over that initial blushing reaction and then they get comfortable with it. Then they can in turn talk about it with someone else as well. So uh, the more that women, women just, just open it up, yeah. uh, the more the word spreads. And we need the, the clinicians to get on that same page too, because not all of them are. I mean, the, the urogynes certainly are because that's what they do all day is prolapse. But we've got to get the gynecologic community, well, any field of practice in, in, uh, healthcare that is engaged in pelvic examinations needs to be comfortable with this subject. And when you have a clinician that is kind of dancing around the words and, and is clearly feeling awkward, that just shoots the whole system right in the foot. So um, we need to address this on the patient side as much as we can by, you know, women can, can have a uh, a meet and greet with other friends, with their friends, or with the wine and chocolate gathering, or whatever they call them now, yeah. and just and just a, a women's health, you know, meet and greet kind of thing, and then just bring the subject up. And then if you just if you categorize it as a women's health thing, and you can certainly you know talk about a couple of other topics that are women's health topics, but you know segue into pelvic organ prolapse. That's kind of a gentle way to introduce the topic, and you don't have to get really graphic right out of out of the the shoot, but if you just uh, share with them, like we've Apops has got that graphic that shows it's like a uh, a splash, and it's got pelvic organ prolapse in the center, and that's got the symptoms coming off of it. Yes. If you just introduce that picture to a group of women without showing them any of the other more graphic details, it yeah. opens up the dialogue. Yeah. And makes yeah. them think, okay, you know what? I've, I've been comfortable forever. My tampons push out, you know, and they start recognizing these symptoms and then that gets the conversation going. So um, any, any ways of, I don't want to say you want to, you know, trick the system <laughs> and say, yeah. oh, okay, now we're going to talk about prolapse and you're not ready for this, but guess what? You're getting it anyway. <laughs> you know, so, um, uh, kind of gently easing into it. Um, you'd be surprised. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, you'd be surprised how women will open up. I gave early, this is before I even found an APOPS, uh, a Eurogyne had brought me into uh, a state in Southern Illinois, or Southern uh, US to give two days back to back a two hour presentation on prolapse to his patients. 
And um, each day there was you know, obviously a different group of, of women there and they yeah. were from about 22 to the oldest old woman there was probably in her mid seventies, I would say one day, the first, first speech I gave. And I'm gonna guess that he strongly recommended that she attend this, this session, this, this uh, speech I gave and she didn't wanna be there. And she oh, came right. in yeah. and she sat down and it was like, um, uh, kind of like uh, tables all the way across the room with the chairs. She even she sat down, she was like this. Oh, you could read the body language. I'm not listening. Oh my God. And she was just closed off, completely closed off. And, and so I did what I usually do when I'm doing a presentation. You know, I, I have my slides ready. You know, and I was just walking. I tend to pace a little bit when I, when I speak, if I'm not behind a podium. And, and I was just, you know, I, I have all the different women in the room and I'm just sharing my blah, blah. And, and I told them that there'd be a Q&A at the end of the presentation. So hold all your questions for the end. And I kept an eye on this woman. Yeah. And I would look at her frequently. And I watched her open up and blossom. It was so cool. By the end of that speech, she was like this. Like, tell me more. Tell me more. It just, it was like, I had obviously hit on things that she had experienced that she didn't put the puzzle pieces together. And she, you know, hadn't, there wasn't any reading on her part or digging on her part. It was, that was back in 2009, you know, so um, there wasn't much talk on available out there on, on, on uh, even in the, right. the library to find stuff. So I got to watch her actually blossom. And that was a really good experience for me to have. And so, um, and then when you go into the Q and A sessions, you actually get to see um, by the expressions on women's faces, how, even if they're uncomfortable at, at the beginning of a conversation, how, as you're enlightening them to, this is the reality. Yes. It's not just you. This you're is millions and millions and millions and now it's billions of women around the world uh, experiencing these same things that you're experiencing so don't feel alone do not feel alone and that creates a comfort zone and once you're in that comfort zone now they start opening up and talking about their issues as well you know so um there's you know there's everyone's got their own technique what works for them um but that's kind of what works for me and 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 Interestingly enough, uh, several of the, the patient presentations that I have done, there have been men there. Okay. And be interesting to read there. I find okay. that men ask exceptional questions. Okay, good. And I'm going to guess that's because it doesn't impact them physically. It doesn't occur to them that, and I usually, uh, you know, I throw in there, if there's men in the audience, I will throw in at some point that, you know, Men tend to assume that if a woman does not want to engage in intimacy, <coughs> she's just not into sex anymore. Men go to that page. You know? and, yes. and you really have to give some thought to the fact that, A, your woman might be just exhausted because she's been chasing kids around all day and she's got to make supper and get the dishes done, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to have a little whoop whoop, offer do the dishes and then maybe you'll get lucky. <laughs> <laughs> or give some thought to if she's got a physical condition going on that is involving her vagina and she's got symptoms that she's too embarrassed to tell you about that that's part of the big picture here. And so if you try to engage her in conversation with saying, are you feeling okay? Or is there something, you know, do I hurt you when we're engaged in intimacy that opens up that conversation that helps them understand that it's not them because they think it's them. Uh, And And then feel rejected. yeah, I'm just rejected. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not any good at, at lovemaking or, or you know, I, I ask too often or whatever. She's and if you help them understand that woman's got a health condition that she's navigating, now they're relieved. It's like, oh, why didn't she tell me that? Yeah. And they don't realize that it's uncomfortable for me to talk about this stuff. So just shining that light, it, it's like the men just light right up. They're like, didn't occur to me, you know? So um, uh, having the live feedback from audiences is so helpful with understanding what direction to go with, um, you know, your conversation and and how you're approaching the subject. So uh, for women that are first talking about this that want to spread the word, gauge your audience, bring them in and just slowly peel back the petals of the flower until you get to the questions that they're asking you. And then it opens up. Yeah, and look, we even have that conversation well, not, not often, we don't actually have the conversation, we have the unspoken conversation about that. So living with prolapse is also 
you are lit that your vagina is the core of your whole entire body. And when you are trying to hold it in all day long, the last thing you want to do at nighttime is let anyone touch it because yeah, it is, yeah. it's sensitive. It I know you yeah. said you didn't feel pain with yours, but a lot of women do women by do. the end of the day. And some so women do even early in the day, you know, yes. it's, it's so variable, you know, depending on what, what you've got going on. So yes. And for women that have got uh, abulsion issues and, and that have got uh, grade three prolapse and they've got two or three types of it. If you're, especially if you're working on your feet, yeah. you can have a lot of pain and discomfort. A I, lot don't know of how women do it. I don't, and I'm actually really looking forward to it because I know we're going to dive deeper into avulsions and types of prolapse in our next episode, which mm-hmm. is wonderful. But I think um, potentially to, to kind of finish up, I do have two more questions, if that's okay. Okay, sure. Yeah, sure. So where is the future for APOPs? I mean, we didn't actually really talk about what APOPs stands for. So if you could just, I mean, a lot of women who are listening probably already know, but for those who are just starting their journey, if you could just sure. explain a little bit about that and then the future, and then maybe give us a bit of information about the support group too that we mentioned Okay, that sounds great. Yes, I kind of I kind of bounced right around that. Um, after I had published uh, that first edition, and I recognized that I should found a nonprofit, I did, and that was is the Association for Pelvic Organ Prolapse Support. APOPS is our acronym, and uh, the intent was again to provide a tool for guidance and support for women that are navigating this condition to give them a place to go to to uh, educate themselves about the condition. And uh, early in, I was asked, this is actually before I founded APOPS, I was asked by someone in the UK who had prolapse and who had started up a Facebook forum, closed Facebook forum. Uh, she asked me to come in and help her because she knew about the book. And she, would you come in and help me moderate this forum? I said, sure, sounds good to me. So I did that. And uh, at, at the beginning, there was about 150 women in that space. And okay. then uh, it started to grow a little bit. And when I got up to around 300 to 350, somewhere in that number of members, she had had surgery and was repaired and she didn't want to do it anymore. Oh, and and, and she wanted to bow out. And I said, well, if that's it, by that time I had found it APOPS. I said, would you mind if I make this APOPS form? And she says, no, have at it. So I did. And we still acknowledge her, her that history is in the, in the form in the, in the about uh, section. And so over time, that closed Facebook support form has grown by leaps and bounds. We're now pulling in, we have about 175 to 200 requests to enter every week in that space. And we're at the point we've got, it's around 17,700 members now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And um, the the purpose of this forum is, it's not APOPs educating women, it's women educating women women supporting women. So it's not, we're just steering the ship is all we're doing. The women that are members are doing all the heavy lifting and they come in and they ask their questions and some women come in and just, just read. Some women come in and tire kick a little bit because they're too nervous to tell their story. Of course. Some women come in and they're just right out of the shoot. They're like, here's what happened to me. And I'm so ticked off. And I want. I think that was me. Yeah. See, that's a good thing. (laughs) Anger is, is very cathartic. You know, you get that stuff out and you're just like, I refuse yeah. to accept this. So, um, and there are others that are just, that they just, they're, they're so depressed. They don't know who to talk to or what to do. So mm-hmm. it, it addresses a lot of the emotional baggage that women have to experience with prolapse, but it also gives them a lot of uh, just basic educational information because again, the, the women in our forum are mid-teens through end of life. And depending on what decade you are, depending on which of the five types of prolapse you have, depending mm-hmm. on the severity that you're experiencing, your lifestyle, your behaviors, uh, what you do for work, all of those things come into the picture with how you navigate your individual situation. And so all these women are sharing their information with other women. And I can tell, like sometimes I'll, Monday through Friday, I post in the forum and we've got uh, seven social media feeds and I post in all of them and they target different audiences. And um, I will... um, if I want to know something specific, because I, I post, you know, I, I post abstracts to research and I post mm-hmm. article links and, and sometimes I'm just laughing about whatever poked at me that day. But sometimes I have a, a targeted question I ask and something will make it pop into my head for some reason. I'll be driving down the road. I'm like, oh, got to write that yeah. down. <laughs> I have to share that with 
And it's something, it's just something I personally experienced. And so um, I can tell when I've hit a nerve, when I post something and women come out of the woodwork and in 24 oh, okay. hours, the thread's got a hundred hits on it. It's like, okay, I hit a nerve with that one. And I love that because it tells me the, those pockets of the highest anxiety or frustration for women. And then I'm like, you know what? I think I need to write an article about that <laughs> because they were very rattled by that comment. So it kind of, uh, that is the mothership of APOPs. I mean, we certainly have a lot of information on the website. I write a lot of articles, uh, you know, doing the videos and et cetera. But um, I think the forum is the heart of APOPs. This is where we get the opportunity to actually connect with women one-on-one. And every now and then, um, I'm like, I, you probably noticed on Saturdays, I'm cleaning house and I'm just like, I have to talk to my chicks. <laughs> you know, I'm just popping there, you know, there's no makeup on it. Here's all the you know, community. You know, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's like the ladies for a while. So yeah, just pop in for five minutes and just say, how are you doing? What are you doing today? You know, and then bounce back out just because they feed me. All of you feed me all the time. It, it's recharges my battery. So um, although APOPs itself, the mothership, uh, we have very targeted goals to increase, radically increase awareness of prolapse and to address the lack of diagnostic clinician curriculum so that women get diagnosed. We hear every day in our forum, why wasn't I informed of or screened for POP sooner? We hear that all the time. Yes, so yes. Um, we're, we're chasing that down and that's a, a hard ship to roll because changing the medical system, it takes a lot. It really takes a lot. You know, they're really, it's an old antiquated system that they're set in their ways and they think that they have all the answers doing it the way they're doing it now. And I have seen a lot of changes over the, these years that, that APOPS has been doing what we do. But when you want to make change, um, it has to go through at a government level. And every country's got their own system. Yeah, so this is a global pandemic. How do we address it, you know, globally? I mean, we can make changes in the U.S. Um, you can make changes by you. Yes, you yeah. England can make changes. Nepal, how do they make changes? That's really hard in developing zones. So it, it's no easy task. And, and I can't begin to imagine what it's going to take to engender the change that we need to see occur to address all women's needs worldwide. Yes, yes. It's just going to be picking away at the stones one stone at a time and, and then Hopefully at some point a, a major shift will occur and then all women will have access to what they should have had access to from early in their lives moving forward. So um, I wish I had the, the secret sauce to tell you, but don't know. So well, we'll have to wait and see it together. Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect answer because there is no one particular thing that's going to change things overnight. And I think women need to know that because you have an amazing journey. You are so inspiring. And I don't know if anyone has told you that recently, but thank you for everything that you do because without that fire in your belly to write a book two weeks after diagnosis, we would not be sitting here chatting today. I'd probably be still sitting alone going, what is this? What am I doing? I've got no clue. Along with the, you know, 17 and a half thousand other members globally. And I'm sure there's more that you actually... Uh, get to help, but you don't know the true impact, right? Because they don't say anything, like we said. Yeah, that's, um, that's the thing of it. Yeah, you just don't know what you don't know. And, and it, it's a yeah. collective. And we all, we're all in this side by side. All women are in the side by side. You know? Every woman's voice is part of the journey. And every woman's energy is a huge piece of the puzzle. So it's because of, of women like you in our space that that we're moving forward. And, and it's priceless. And, and I have to say, I did... I don't know how I knew. I knew two weeks, besides the whole pessary backstory, I knew two weeks after I was diagnosed that this was my destiny. I can't tell you how I knew. I should have been terrified. I should have been running in the opposite direction. <laughs> I was like, I can't do this. But I just knew. And, and um, every one of us, whatever our journey is, we're just taking one step forward at a time and finding our ways and uh, wherever you're meant to be is where you're meant to be. And uh, I'm so incredibly grateful for all the people that have engaged with APOPs over this time because it feeds me every day. 
It truly feeds me. It really, really yeah. does. So thank you for what you do. What you do <laughs> is priceless and, 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 and I'm really enjoying watching you grow and evolve. Stephanie, oh, I really, really am. It's I'm cool. just one of those little stones in that big picture that, you know, we will continue to do what we can do. Um, and you know what? I've got this little girl. She's five years old, Elsie. She is my main driver as to make sure that this does not happen to her. And I really look forward to being able to discuss that with you further in our next episode because it's a whole nother, the childbirth space is is in prolapse and it's, um, it's quite in depth. So people will have to tune back into the next episode, but Sherry, thank you for your time today. It is so valuable and we've loved hearing your journey and that's what it is. It's a journey that is continuing. So we look forward to talking with you again very soon. Sounds awesome, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to engage me in, in your conversation and to all of your following. Pay attention to what she's saying. It's important stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, ladies. Okay, Thank bye-bye. So, what an episode, right? When you've worked on something around the clock for 14 years, There is no way that our conversation could fit all of that into just one hour. This is why we have a part two of our chat next week. So join us again for some more information. We dive deeper into levator anite avulsions, surgery, and much, much more. So if you just go now and hit that subscribe button, this will make sure that you won't miss part two of this important conversation. So just lastly, Sherry Palm also has an online community to support women living with pelvic organ prolapse. There are over 19,000 women that are there to help, support, and share information. You can find out how to join the APOPS group through their website. We're going to pop the APOPS website link in the show notes below. Join us next week. We look forward to having you back and bye for now. Mama